Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. William Shun is the author of The Accidental Terrorist, a book about his time as a Mormon missionary. He was supposed to preach in Alberta, but it wasn't long before he was convicted of felony mischief after making a false bomb threat. He's still not allowed to return to Canada. We're going to find out what the hell happened. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I, I love the work that you do. Thanks so much. Uh, Bill, before we get to the whole bomb thing, can you give us a little background on what your upbringing was? On what my, I'm sorry. Your upbringing. Uh, what did you grow up in? What religion were you part of? And kind of what led up to this incident? Uh, I was raised in a fairly devout Mormon household. I was born in L.A. in the late 60s, uh, the oldest of eight children, uh, as it would eventually turn out. And uh, my parents were... Uh, as I said, very devout, and we were all raised with the expectation, all the boys anyway, the three of us were raised with the expectation that when we uh, grew up and turned 19, we would go on a mission. I was always regaled growing up with stories about when my father had been a missionary in Germany uh, in the early 60s, and he drilled me on gospel topics while I was growing up. Uh, I learned to speak in church at an early age, and uh, my basic upbringing was the expectation that I would go on a mission, go to BYU, get married in a Mormon temple, and probably become a church leader at some point. Does L.A. have a big Mormon population? I'm not familiar with that at all. It does. Uh, Southern <laughs> California has one of the larger Mormon populations in the country. Uh, we lived there until I was six, uh, at which time we moved to Utah, and then uh, we are obviously in an even uh, uh, an even bigger Mormon community there, but uh, I still have a lot of relatives who uh, are associated with the church to some extent or another in Southern California. And one of the earliest Mormon temples, uh, in fact, well, one one from of the earliest from the 20th century is in Los Angeles. Oh, I had no idea. There you go. And you're no longer associated with the church, correct? Exactly. Exactly. I really stopped. Uh, participating in the in the church about 20 years ago and mm -hmm. started uh, writing about my experiences online. So was the mission trip that you went on, Bill, was it what you expected? It really was, was not much like what I expected. Uh, my view of missionaries, uh, which had developed from the time I was a uh, young child seeing missionaries in Los Angeles, uh, was that there are these, these great preachers, um, you know, kind of brawny, really spiritual men 
who had a real knack for preaching and could go out and and uh, convert great multitudes. Um, I expected that the mission field was going to be something like that for me, and I sort of hoped that it would be, because I didn't feel uh, so great about my own connection with uh, with Mormonism. Um, you know, I I had come to resent uh, the burden that the church imposed and this this two-year mission that was coming up, and I really felt sinful about that. And I hoped that the mission would help change me and, and change my heart and make me a better Mormon, uh, make me a better, a better person and a more spiritual person, uh, which is really what I felt like I needed to be. But once I got out of the mission field, I saw that the reality was there were a whole lot of missionaries who weren't all that interested in, in keeping the rules. How do uh, they break the we, rules? Well, we had, we had all kinds of uh, different uh, rules and regulations we were supposed to live by. No reading newspapers, no magazines, no going to movies, uh, no dating, things like that. A lot of missionaries broke the, the no movies rule. Um, if we were in an area where we were required to drive a car, um, sometimes missionaries would go way over their monthly mileage allotments, and they weren't supposed to leave the uh, areas where they were assigned to proselytize. You'd have a geographical area that was yours. Um, and if you went outside that area without authorization, that was breaking the rules. And some people took those cars and went on really long road trips. <laughs> and then to, to cover it up would uh, crack open the odometer and roll the numbers wow. back. That's impressive. <laughs> but it, it does yeah. seem like this is a big commitment to go on. I'm about to spend two years on this mission trip. If your heart's not totally into that, that's got to be a hard uh, trip to go on. Oh, it's it's horrendous if your heart's not in it. And my heart wasn't in it. I knew other plenty of other missionaries who weren't. And, you know, those two years could just seem interminable. And they did for me. And so you went... You had a partner, obviously. That it's always with. It's always a pair, right? Exactly. Um, in, in fact, over the course of of your mission, you're probably going to be paired with you know eight to ten different people oh. uh, over time. Your first companion is called your trainer, and when you first arrive in the mission field, you're assigned a specific trainer in a specific area. Uh, my first area was a t- little town on the plains in Alberta called Brooks. And I was sent there with a, with a, a companion who, uh, in the book I call him Elder Fowler. And he had been out on his mission for just about uh, 21 or 22 months. So he was close to going home. And, you know, as missionaries come into the mission field, leave the mission field, get promotions and so forth, all the, the mission partners are, are shuffled around um, so, you know, your partner will, will rotate over time. Uh, it's not exactly like you see in the Book of Mormon musical where you're assigned one person before you leave uh, Provo, Utah, and you're with that person for the next two years. Okay, it's, that's it's, literally it's, my entire frame of reference for Mormon missions, <laughs> so now I'm lost. Mormons, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So did you have any really bad, I mean, that's like getting a bad roommate or yeah. something, but like, did you have any really bad experiences or... I can understand not connecting with a partner, maybe, but was were uh, were any of them horrendous? Were any of them like turning out to be your best friends? Uh, I had I had uh, probably every every experience along the spectrum that you could possibly have. <laughs> uh, 
I really liked my first companion. Uh, he, he treated me like a little brother um, that the little brother he had never had. And we still stay in touch and, uh, and correspond every so often. Uh, my second companion was a nightmare. <laughs> um, he came in just after or, or just before Christmas. My first, uh, I'd been out in the mission field for about three months and he just didn't want to do any work at all. And, you know, I was more than happy to go along with that and not work, um, or, or at least not work as hard as a missionary is supposed to work. But the problem was that the local Mormons out in our community could see sometimes that we weren't working, that we were maybe going and shooting pool at the pool hall on a Tuesday afternoon when we should have been out knocking on doors. And that became a problem for us. Um, and uh, I just really started to become very depressed because I couldn't convince him to, to really do anything. And I knew that I was supposed to be working hard and working on my spirituality and, you know, saving souls, converting people. And the fact that we were sitting around playing little handheld Mattel video games all day sometimes um, just made me feel really horrible about myself. As and if you didn't so, feel bad enough already. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, there's just there's just so much pressure from every direction. And I had a I had left a girlfriend back home. Uh, we had secretly gotten engaged right before I left on my mission. So I was feeling extremely, extremely homesick. Um, and so it was it was a, a few weeks into my partnership with with this second companion that I decided it was that I was done. I was going to leave the mission. I was going to run away, go back home, um, hang out with my girlfriend and just be done with the whole thing because I couldn't take it anymore. So when you're doing all this, uh, you said, I think in your book, you mentioned that one of the partners that you were with, uh, Finn was his name. You grew really close to him. Uh, yes, Elder Elder Finn and I, uh, well, Finn was someone that I, I was only partnered with uh, for uh, a short period of time, um, a, a day here and a day there. But this was later on when I was reassigned from Brooks to, uh, to Calgary itself, where there were a whole lot of missionaries. And my... Uh, my mission companion there was a district leader who was in charge of of uh, supervising about six other missionaries. And every once in a while there would be a conference where all the district leaders had to get together for a couple of days, and then their companions would, would pair up for a couple of days. We called that split-offs. So Finn was a Finn was a temporary companion, but uh, but we did become very close in a very short period of time. So let me get to the heart of... Uh you know, the whole point of your book, it's called The Accidental Terrorist, and that's because you phone in this bomb threat. Set us up for that. What is going on where that even happens? Because that seems like the most un-Mormon thing you could do. In a way, it does. And in a way, it's it's maybe one of the, one of the most Mormon things I could possibly have done. <laughs> um, but I might, I probably need to back up a little bit to, to set the stage for that. Um, I was talking about my uh, my earlier companion, who I call uh, Elder Deadman, in the book, and how uh, I had decided to run away. Um, I I did sneak out in the middle of the night one night, just before New Year's, and hop on a bus, 
and try to make the trip from Brooks back to Salt Lake City. Uh, however, as soon as the mission realized that I had left, they activated this Mormon APB system and put out a, a bulletin on me. They, uh, the church has this extraordinary communications network. Uh, this is a side of know. Mormonism I know nothing about. I love it. I'm imagining it like white guy, short sleeve, white shirt, black tie, parted hair. <laughs> well, it, in a way, uh, the church is really uh, very hierarchically organized and is and is set up to be able to respond when there are emergency situations, you know, say there's a flood somewhere, um, the, a Mormon leader can call up his leader and activate this whole network of people to come out and fill sandbags. Um, I actually was part of that when there was a flood in Northern Utah back in the early eighties. Um, the church just, uh, mobilized these hordes of, of volunteers, uh, to help, to help with flood control. Uh, in this case, however, uh, the church contacted uh, their local leaders and missionaries all along the bus route that I was going to be taking. How did they know? Or I guess there's only one. They <laughs> well, just assumed you're going back to so Salt Lake. there are so many roads that, that right. a bus from Calgary to Salt Lake City are going to take. This is season um, three of Serial, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, they, they knew pretty much where I was going to be. So there was a, there was a local church leader waiting at the bus station in Great Falls, Montana, when I got there and he confronted me when I went into the, into the men's room. Um, and eventually, because at that time in my life, I was highly susceptible to, um, to authority, especially Mormon authority. He talked me into going back to Calgary, um, and, and, uh, and finishing up my mission. Um, not, I, I didn't do it without some degree of dragging my feet. But when I got back to Calgary, the mission president there uh, told me that I was in absolutely no trouble. Uh, the church was not going to punish me for having run away. Um, they completely understood why I'd done what I'd, what I'd done, especially given the reports about our behavior that they'd been hearing from Brooks. But, he said, my companion, Elder Deadman, was going to be punished. He was going to be demoted from senior companion to junior companion, moved back into Calgary and kept under close supervision there, um, and, and basically shamed. So they punished and, your partner for what you did? Exactly. Man, exactly. that's they, heavy on the guilt. Yeah, it's, yeah, they... <laughs> yeah. And, and specifically what my mission president told me, was uh, that Elder Deadman was being punished for not doing everything in his power to keep his companion from leaving. Damn. <laughs> yeah. That's, so. that's kind of evil genius. That I'm very <laughs> impressed that that, like, if they punished you, you'd be like, all right, I deserved it, whatever. But man, right. they're going after your partner. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's a very, it was a very insidious uh, form of, of sort of making us all, uh, responsible for each other and, um, and and binding us more tightly into into that whole missionary community. Um, I, I really do feel like I was I was brainwashed um, by the time I left that meeting um, to such an extent that when a couple of months later I was with uh, this elder Finn, who I really liked. Uh, we had a lot in common. We loved talking about music, um, girls, all kinds of things. Um, but in February, when we went on split offs, he suddenly told me that he was miserable as a missionary. 
he was done. He was going to fly home that night, and I was going to, uh, if everything went according to plan, I was going to drive him to the airport uh, and help him leave. And he had been planning this for a couple of months. He had heard through the Mission Grapevine that I had tried to run away, and he assumed that I was going to be sympathetic. As it turned out, I was completely panicked by the fact that he was leaving. And all I could think about was this um, pronouncement that the mission president had made that uh, a missionary has to do everything in his power to keep his companion from leaving. Oh, my God. So, when we, so I tried to talk him out of leaving, but that didn't work. And I went with him to the airport because you're never supposed to let your companion out of your sight. Um, but finally, when he was on the verge of, of leaving, I snuck away to a phone to try to call someone. You know, I talked to various people at the mission, but the upshot of things was that uh, no one was going to be able to get to the airport to talk to him in time. And so he's going to fly away unless you do something. Exactly. Exactly. So no one told me to do this, but the thing that occurred to me that could prevent him from leaving was to call the airline and say there was a bomb on his flight. So what'd you do? So you think you called the airline? That's it? That's that's exactly what I did. I, I looked up oh uh, the airline in the yellow pages. When they answered, I just said, there's a bomb in a suitcase on flight 789. <laughs> and I hung up. As a brown person, I'm very impressed you could do this. <laughs> well, that does... That does show you what white privilege can get you, you know. So what happened after that? Like, oh, do you just hang up the phone God. and like, all right, well, I'll just wait here until he comes back out? Just stroll away. Well, uh, no, actually, as soon as I hung up the phone, I realized that What's I had just done something really stupid. And I was really afraid, especially when I, I started walking through the airport terminal. And I could see men walking around with walkie-talkies, oh you know, God. looking very, very intent and, and moving quickly. Can I pause you for uh, a second? Do you think at this moment the Mormon church is going to hear about this and they're going to be like, yep, you, you did everything you could have done? <laughs> Well, uh, we may get to that. I mean, they okay. essentially did tell me that at that right. uh, okay. one point. So you're walking in the airport. <laughs> you see these security guards. I see these security guards, and I'm just freaking out. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I have I have got to get out of here. Um, but I called the mission one more time to, to report in on the fact that I had, you know, I didn't tell them I'd made a bomb threat, but I did say, you know, I've I've called the airline and, you know, asked them to delay the flight. And... <laughs> I took care of it. <laughs> I asked them politely. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. And they said they wanted me to, to go find where Elder Finn was in the airport and stay with him until someone else from the mission got there. And, of course, he, he had already gone through customs and had been ready to board the flight before uh, – before the flight got grounded, because that's what happened. The flight got grounded. All the passengers who had who had been on it, uh, coming from Edmonton, got evacuated. They started searching the plane with bomb-sniffing dogs and things like that. Wait, what year is this again? This was 1987 at okay. this point. Where, you didn't call it from inside the airport, did you? You were like, oh, I did call it you from did. inside the airport. <laughs> Like I said, this was not really well thought out. Okay, so what happens after this? I'm going to call my mom and say all the shit I did when I was 19 was, well, I was an angel. 
um, at this point, I went to uh, I went to the customs gate to see if there was any way that I or someone else from the mission could get through to to talk to Elder Finn, and they immediately knew something was up <laughs> uh, because this is just not something that people come along and ask randomly. Uh, so I they ended up getting a. Uh, getting a constable from the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to come over and talk to me. And uh, he took me off into his office in the airport precinct and asked me to tell him my story. And then he made it pretty clear to me that he had guessed that that I had something to do with a, a situation that was going on at the airport. And he told me, if you've got any information that will help us clear this up, things will go well for you. So I... I broke down and confessed and I was taken into custody immediately and spent that night in, uh, in a, a jail in downtown Calgary. And what's, so, Finn, did you ever get to see Finn at this point? <laughs> no, I never did get to see Finn. And in fact, uh, he was one of the few passengers who ended up uh, making his connecting flight in Salt Lake city. And he got home to California uh, that very evening. So this whole plan doesn't even work for what it was intended <laughs> right. to do. Right. It did not accomplish what uh, what it was supposed to. <laughs> so what happens to you at this point? Uh, well, I, like I said, I spent the night in jail. I was supposed to see a, a bail magistrate that night, um, but the crown prosecutor of Alberta, like a, the, the state attorney general, decided that um, I was a terrorist and I needed to be made an example of. So they had told the, the bail magistrates not to let me out on bail that night. Um, and this was an issue for Calgary because the uh, the Winter Olympics were going to be coming to to that city uh, just a year later in 1988. So they're so, thinking security a yeah. lot. Exactly. And they're thinking they need to show the world that they're tough on terrorism. Uh, as it turned out, uh, the church found an attorney for me the next day, and he got he did get me out on bail. And the uh, the whole trial process goes pretty quickly in Canada, surprisingly. Um, uh, the day after that, I went to a hearing to elect how I was going to be tried. You can either be tried by a jury or a judge. Um, and I actually um, pled guilty to public mischief at at that hearing. It they is so to good to be white. With... Oh my god! Haven't <laughs> <laughs> you'd never see the light of day again? I know. Yeah, I can't. I can't <laughs> overstate that. And and, a, and a humble and and to be a humble Mormon missionary. Right. Also. Right. Um, I can't. Uh, so, is, did is insane. that what you got like convicted on mischief? Yes, yes. And what is that the, sentence? Uh, well, they, they actually tried to change my charge to hijacking. There's uh -huh. this weird reading of the hijacking statute that says any threat against an airliner while it's still in the air can be called hijacking. Uh, and I didn't know it, but the plane was flying in from Edmonton at the time I made the call. So oh. they tried to charge me with hijacking, but uh, my lawyer um, talked them out of that uh, as we agreed to, to plead to public mischief. And by Thursday of that week, this all started on a Monday. By Thursday, I uh, had pled guilty and I was sentenced to uh, time served and a $2,000 fine. 
Just out of curiosity, I don't know the timeline here. When was the Lockerbie bombing? Uh, Lockerbie, I think it was in the late 90s. Oh, okay, sure. so that's Maybe way in the 90s. future from here. I'm just... Yes. So yeah, this yeah that had not happened yet. So uh, you know, terrorism and and airplanes in at least in Canada, yeah. it wasn't such a big thing yet. Yeah, because this was this is a novel thing for sure. them too. This is not a thing that they're even maybe on their radar necessarily. Right. Right. Um, yeah, certainly, if it had, if it had happened after Lockerbie and definitely after nine eleven. Right. Things would have gotten very different for me, I'm sure. Okay, so Canada does all this stuff. I'm very curious what the Mormon Church did with you then. Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um, the uh, The Mormon Church, my my mission president, first of all, told me that this was a really stupid thing I did, <laughs> but he completely Thanks, understood my heart was in the right place. I had, you know, I had, I had. Uh, um, only been looking out for my fellow missionary and so they they declined to punish me and later on a couple of weeks later i met with uh a higher official from the church uh, a, a member of the quorum of 70 from salt lake city uh, this is high up. to talk to me yeah, very high up. i don't know yeah. what that means yeah. quorum of 70 uh, and he informed me that also the church was was not going to punish me and they understood what i had what i had done and why but just um, wait they till condoned it. Well, just wait but... till they tell you what they're doing to your partner at the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and that's when I was informed that the church was actually going to move me out of Canada and I was going to finish my mission in the United States. As it turned out, two days later, Canada Immigration decided they were that after a felony conviction, I was no longer eligible to uh, be in Canada, and I have not been able to set foot over the border since. Wowza. So wait, what did happen to Finn? Well, Finn, um, he actually, uh, sort of like me when I was trying to run away, when he landed in Salt Lake City, uh, one of the former mission presidents who had served in Calgary was waiting there for him. I heard this later um, and and tried to talk him into going back on his mission. Finn totally ignored him, ran to his connecting flight, made it home. And he left the church for a year or two. Um, I actually emailed with him, boy, it's been maybe 15 years ago, and he told me more of the story. Uh, he really hated the church at at that point, uh, because of the, the way they treated him when he was trying to leave his mission. And, uh, it was maybe a year or so after, uh, after he'd left the church, he met a Mormon girl there in California and she talked him back in and, and he had been faithful in the church ever since then. Man, huh. terrorist bomb threat for nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so did the, I'm, did the church ever change that rule that says, like, you must do everything possible to prevent your partner from leaving to, like, you should do almost everything to prevent your partner from leaving? There's <laughs> a big asterisk. Well, yeah, big asterisk next to all that. Right. I've actually heard uh, apocryphal, possibly apocryphal tales of, of, of missionaries who've heard me used as an object lesson at the missionary <laughs> training center. In You're a Provo case study in some that... training manual somewhere. I love it. I would love yeah. it if you were like the good guy in that story. They're like, this is what this Mormon did. Would <laughs> you, you want to talk about devotion? This is devotion. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they actually consider me the dumb guy in that story. <laughs> okay, so let's fast forward now. You're not part of the church anymore, and I'm wondering, uh, beyond that particular story, um, do you think, I mean, do you see any, I don't know if schadenfreude is the right word for it, but like <laughs> the Mormon church is, have, is struggling right now. A lot of people are leaving it because of their policies toward gay people especially, but what are your yes. thoughts about what the church is going through right now? Is it like, yeah, this is what it deserves? I'm glad more people are seeing the light of day. Um, yeah, I do. I do think this is this is what the the church deserves. You know, for uh, for decades, if not more than a century, the church has really tried to conceal a whole lot about its history from its members, and. You know, when I uh, after I got back from my mission and started reading about Mormon history um, and and started understanding the real roots of of my own faith, um, you know, learning everything about Joseph Smith and all of his sh- shenanigans, um, I was very very angry, and I think that's a very common response for Mormons when they start realizing how much. Uh, has been withheld from them, and people get angry. And now that it's the that it's the internet internet age, that sort of material is just much easier. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, it was very easy for the church to um, to tell people, you know, you have to stay away from anti Mormon literature. Don't read these kinds of books. There's nothing in there that's going to help you. Um, it's only going to harm your spirit. And if you if you even start looking at these things, you're letting Satan into your life. They can't Nowadays, keep you in that bubble anymore. Right, right, right. It's just so easy um, to to go to Google and start learning all this material. That uh, uh, yeah, the church is is starting to um, to pay the price for all that deceit over the years. Well, it's a fascinating uh, story. Um, and then, like we said at the beginning. The longer version of this story and your life in and out of the Mormon church is in your book, The Accidental Terrorist. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for sharing that with us, and we'll have links to all of this in the show notes. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.